Hey everyone, we're so excited to present this interview about solitary druidism with Dave from the Unearthing Paranormalcy podcast. Yeah, I really like the way that creativity and inspiration are emphasized in Dave's description of his path. I feel like it's something that many of us can really relate to in a pretty fundamental way. Absolutely. We also want to give a big thanks to the whole crew over there at Unearthing Paranormalcy for having us on as guests of their show. Uh, you, you can find links to, in the episode description to the discussion about Dion Fortune and the World War II Magical Battle of Britain. Yeah, that is right. And yeah, thank you guys so much for having us on. It was a lot of fun. So big shout out to all of you. Uh, and so without further ado, here is our interview with Dave. Hey everyone, Hector here. The following interview was uh, taken for our listener interviews series. However, this particular interview is so rich with information that we decided it deserved its own standalone episode. So what you're about to listen to is an interview with our good friend Dave from Unearthing Paranormalcy. Um, on druidism but before we get to that i would just like to say that if you are a big fan of the show if you appreciate what we're putting out there and want to support us please consider contributing to our patreon at patreon.com forward slash fg the number two t-o you cannot search for our patreon because it's listed as um, uh, adult content so you actually have to type in the link or find the link in our description or on the Facebook page. So uh, the way our Patreon set up is there's no tiers. It's all access, um, minimum $1, but pay what you can, and you get access to all the content that we're putting out there uh, regardless of what you can afford. So we'd really appreciate it if you'd, uh, at the very least, check out what we're doing. And um, But with that, let's get on to this very wonderful interview we have for you today. <laughs> and uh we're off all right so our first question for you is what name would you like to go by today feel free to make up a pseudonym if you like uh you can call me dave okay well you want to say a few words about yourself sure i'm a solitary druid i speak only for myself and my practice and not the orders or members of the orders from around the world i've been on the druid path for only 10 years okay for me, Druidism is a religion and philosophy that is as sturdy as the Standing Stone. It has incorporated in itself an emphasis of knowledge and science married with magic and spirituality. Awesome. Well, yeah, th thank you so much for being willing to come on and talk to us about it. And thank you so much for being so generous with your time and knowledge. We're really looking forward to hearing what you have to say about this topic. Oh, yeah. I want to thank you for the opportunity to... To share this, you know, it's, sometimes it's hard to find people you can speak openly with. Definitely. For sure. For sure. All right. Um, do you want to say a little bit about Druidism in general before we continue on? Uh, yeah. In general, Druids uh, have a diverse set of beliefs, which are unique for each individual. It's pretty much completely free of dogma and stuff like that. Uh, very diverse and flexible. Uh, there's a joke amongst our circles of ask five druids what druidry is and you'll get 10 answers. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I love it. All right. Do you have uh, any little familiars at home running around keeping you company? Oh, yeah. 
we got this cat that lives in my house, which my daughter named Rocky. He was uh, born feral in a house full of cats while the owner was on a long hospital stay. So he doesn't go outside at all. <laughs> and and most of what he does is he just hides. But but the weird thing is, whenever I'm working magic, he has to be like right in the middle of it. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. I think that's a really good point about some cats and how they seem to know when magic is happening. <laughs> and probably other animals too, I'm guessing. Definitely. Also like general cat behavior, right? Got to be in the middle of what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, like I say, he's feral, so he scratches and bites. But it, interestingly enough, he never does when he's around on the altar or anything. Huh. That's very cool. Mm, he knows what's up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, outside my house, uh, you know, out of my grove, there's lots of animals. There's birds, cats, uh, turtles, field mice. Uh, there's a family of rabbits that moved in over the winter in my uh, garden shed. Uh, we love bunnies. Uh, yeah. I love bunnies. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't even live in the country. I, I live in the middle of town. <laughs> That's great. Wow. <laughs> They're just kind of drawn here. I, I don't know. I cool. love that. <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful. So could, would you tell us a little bit about how you got started on your cult journey? Well, as far back as I could remember, I've had animistic beliefs. Uh, I could feel this unique energy radiating from things around me, uh, from people, from animals, even like trees and sticks and stones, uh, but, but not necessarily from everything. I also developed a powerful intuition early in my life. My imagination has also never withered with aging, and I've always had a thirst for knowledge and a deep curiosity. But um, a little over 10 years ago, I stumbled upon this book, uh, by sheer accident, I thought I was downloading a PDF copy of a book for Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we love Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> and, and as I'm reading through this PDF called the Druidry Handbook, uh, I was just drawn into it immediately. All these connections started being made. Uh, I had words to describe the mysterious parts of my perception that, at that point, I was just trying to ignore. And I felt like, to put it metaphorically, I was being called home. Yeah, I really love that. Yeah, that sounds like a wonderful experience. Uh, just to like find, just stumble on something that really resonates with you like that. That's yeah. really, can I ask, did you find yourself playing a druid often when you played D&D? No. <laughs> I'm just curious. <laughs> um, most of what I did when playing Dungeons & Dragons was the Dungeon Master. Because okay. oh, okay. I've always cool. had the big imagination and the visualization, and so I would always collect stuff like a like that to use for my campaigns that I crafted or the NPCs I would make and things. Definitely. Sounds amazing. Yeah. Yeah, those <laughs> I love those it. are definitely very transferable, right? The like imagination to to create game like that, and also to the imagination for uh, for magic. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. But definitely. but this book. You know, it helped me to understand this universal energy that's called Nuivra, which can flow through everything, including creative works. In that creative form, it's called Aowen, the divine inspiration that flows. But Nuivra itself is neutral, and it seeks equilibrium. 
so it can also be stagnant within things. But New Ifra follows will, intentionality, and it follows the natural laws of energy. It has no doctrine, no avatars. Uh, it is us, and it is everything else, so there's really nothing holy about it. Um, it links the mind and body, transcending the duality of them both. I got a I got a deep belief that all spiritual paths can lead to enlightenment, but only if they are for the individual. I, I guess to offer a comparison of Nuivra, Eliphas Levy called it uh, astral light, and Hindu and sorry, and Hindu yogis call it prana. Okay, it's uh, it's like the force. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's that's actually a really good way to put that. Uh, yeah, I kind of in my head I sort of think about it as you know the stuff, <laughs> the stuff, <laughs> the stuff. <laughs> that permeates cool. everything. Yeah, I don't yeah. know which martial arts practice it is, but one of them calls it chi, kung fu. Yeah, I think. Oh, okay, thank you. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, how would you describe your like individual path or practice? You already kind of talked about Druidism a little bit, but um, what does that mean to you? Well, I have a veneration for my ancestors, and I believe in most Neoplatonic and Hermetic ideologies I've read and studied, like the existence of another world or an astral world. Uh, I believe in reincarnation, the existence of elementals, including thought forms, which I view as a type of mentally constructed elemental. Um, I work with gods and goddesses, but more like as partners than in a devotional way. For me, the gods and goddesses are just a more focused and powerful thought form. And that's mostly because they're defined to be immersed in what they govern and were developed over millennia through mythology, folktale, you know, other magic, which is no different to me than what magician, what magic practitioners have accomplished for the elements of air, fire, water, and earth over the centuries as well as the meanings of the words both bards and warriors have used to describe glory, love, sacrifice, peace, and valor throughout the ages. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting way to describe that, for sure. Yeah, I've noticed from listening to podcasts like, like yours and, you know, reading other materials I get my hands on, most of the practices I do are called different things in different traditions, but I'm not always sure of the generic terms or the origin terms. Uh but, I mean, I'll describe things as vividly as I can, and if I have a comparison, I'll offer one. And if you know of one, let me know. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but like most magic systems, what I practice probably has its roots embedded in hermeticism in theory and at parts in practice. Uh, it is in no way a continuation of ancient Druidism. I mean, that died out thousands of years ago. Sure. But Druidry, since its revival, has regrown into a deep-rooted oak tree in the great soil web of life. Yeah, definitely. Hey, did you ever, um, are you familiar with that podcast, Stuff You Should Know? Yeah. Have you ever listened to their episode on, on Druidry? I think I did. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. They, I mean, there isn't like a lot of the old information still around, but they drew on like all the sources they could find and put together a pretty decent episode. I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, for the most part, the writings come from like Julius Caesar, who uh, kind of didn't have a lot of good things to say, and yeah. then Pliny the Elder. But Pliny the Elder, he was a naturalist, 
And uh, mm-hmm. I think he was a bit of a philosopher. But, I mean, he even wrote about stuff like unicorns and, and dragons. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot he of Korea says they found a unicorn, right? <laughs> I love Pliny. He comes up all the time. <laughs> so, I mean, you could either take him with a grain of salt or realize that maybe the world was far more magical back then. <laughs> Or maybe an intersection of the two. You never know. (laughs) Precisely. Um, I like what you said, too, though, about just describing your practice without necessarily, like, naming the things. You know, I think that that could be really useful for people to have access to the techniques without necessarily needing to know what they're called, you know. Right, right. So, yeah, I like that. Yeah. So, I mean, I can go into a bit of detail. There's uh, three legs to the cauldron of druid magic. There's ritual, there's divination, and there's meditation. Uh, for now, I, I can just talk about kind of my daily practices. That would be amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Sure. Uh, yeah. We'd love to uh, a ritual that. I perform yeah. daily is the sphere of protection. This is taught to all initiates of the ancient order of Druids in America. I think it was developed in maybe the 1970s by a member of that order. But it, it's kind of like it's a a small ritual they teach you that you can memorize without any books or notes, you know, to give you the first, I guess, basis of making magic. Okay. Could you sort of explain to us how that goes or would that break uh, some kind of... Oh, no, absolutely not. (laughs) I'm not affiliated with any orders, so, I mean, I don't have any uh, secrets I can't give out. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Oh, we'd, we'd love to hear like what, okay. what that's like. It begins with the elemental cross, and then it goes into the calling of the seven elements, and it ends with the circulation of light. Okay. And could you explain a little bit about what those seven elements are? Yeah, there's three to spirit, four to matter, and seven to the universe, which is made of both. The four to matter are your basic air, fire, water, and earth. Your three to spirit is spirit below, spirit above, and spirit within. Cool. But the intention behind the elemental cross is establishing an axis mundi within myself or my grove as the center of the universe. So it can operate as a crossword for a new refro or the life force energy of elements, the celestial currents, my ancestors, deities, entities, uh, other various powers. Um, The elemental cross is taught that the initiate chooses symbolism for two points of a vertical axis and two points for a horizontal axis. The vertical axis is traditionally for the gods or male saints, and the horizontal is for the goddesses or the female saints. But because druidry is diverse, flexible, and non-dogmatic, I use the elements found in hermeticism and in nature around me. I personally begin the elemental cross by facing east if I'm performing it by myself and not as part of a bigger magical working. For the vertical axis, I use the sky above me and the earth beneath me. For the horizontal axis, I use the fires at my right hand and the waters at my left hand. The uh, gestures that are done are typically the same for most druids. I, I don't think I need to describe them, but... The visualizations are the sun's light is entering my head during the invocation of the air or the sky above me. Then it descends to the solar plex where it stays. 
as I am invoking the second power of Earth, the light radiating at my solar plex descends down the midline all the way to the heart of the Earth. As I invoke the third and fourth powers, the lights flowing from the sun through me to the center of the Earth and out to the right and left at an infinite distance. Then I visualize two more rays of light, one ahead and one behind me at an infinite distance. At this point, the sphere of light at my solar plex has six rays of light extending above, below, right, left, in front of, and behind me. Then I finish the elemental cross portion by invoking protection and a blessing from the powers of nature for me and my grove. Cool. All right. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that with us. That's really... Oh, absolutely. And then the next part of the sphere of protection ritual is the calling of the elements. Uh, it begins with the four New River material elements, which begins by facing east and opening the eastern gate, invoking the air and invoking its blessings. Uh, now, this blessing can either be done in a general way or by including specific blessings that the air element provides, like eloquence, clarity, justice, uh, yeah, and so on, uh, for either empowering of myself or towards the intention of a greater magical working I'm performing. At this point, I thank the air for its gifts. After that, I follow it with the banishing of the harmful and disturbing influences and the imbalances of the nature of air. And this portion can also be empowered with specific unwanted traits governed by the air, like anger, pride, and detachment. Uh, additionally, it can also be empowered to banish certain undesirable outcomes, uh, hindrances or influences towards the intention of a greater magical working. And both these, uh, both the invoking and the banishing is accomplished by using the invoking and banishing symbols of air while saying incantations, which each druid crafts for themselves. Uh, visualization is crucial. There are specific colors involved with the symbols and the druids are encouraged to visualize scenery symbolized by the element in the area beyond the gate. The more powerful the visualization, the more easier it is to do some divination I'll discuss with you later. And then I, I just kind of fly through the rest of the four material elements. You know, the southern gate invokes and banishes the fire. The western gate invokes and banishes the water. And the northern gate invokes and banishes the earth. I mean, just pretty much like hermeticism. I, th I think they do the same in Wicca. And then, of course, those uh, empowerments can be added for the elementals they govern and, and banish, just like how I described with the air. I'll go into a little more detail for the next part for the three new ever currents um, and how they're invoked and visualized. The silver telleric current of spirit below from the heart at the center of the earth and the golden solar current of spirit above from the sun in our cosmos. Now, these combine together in balance to make the lunar current of spirit within, which is the source of Aowen, the divine inspiration that flows. While facing east again, or towards the altar if it's part of a greater magical working, the spirit of symbol below is traced on the ground or under the altar if it's present. This opens the gate to spirit below, and then I invoke the tolerant current from the center of the earth up to the working space with incantations to receive protections and blessings or empowerments. Uh, no banishing is conducted for the element of spirit below in the sphere of protection ritual. The symbol of spirit above is traced over the altar or above myself to open its gate. Then I invoke the solar current to descend to the center with incantations to receive its protections and blessings. And no banishing is conducted for that 
element either. Uh, then I focus forward and invoke the seventh element of spirit within by using the six elements I've already invoked with incantations to invoke the lunar current to receive protection and a blessing for the work I'm about to carry out by my grove. Then I begin the incantations to transition to the circulation of light. Okay. Uh, and what's the circulation of light? The circulation of light begins by focusing back to the light at my solar plex that was established during the elemental cross. I start to visualize this growing in size to the area I wish to protect. And that can be from 10 feet to entire biodomes, really. It just depends on my intention. Um, I begin to spin this sphere visually, first rolling in front of me, um, kind of like I'm in a hamster wheel. And then I start spinning it uh, sunwise or clockwise, like a spinning coin or like a hula hoop. And then with those rotations going, I start spinning it sunwise again, but kind of around me from like my head down to my feet at the sides of myself. I really don't know what else to compare that to, but, <laughs> but sure. I, I just keep visualizing these rotations until it's, it's moving at an infinite amount of speed. So, so fast that it seems like it's not even moving anymore. And what that does is it puts the, the sphere of protection around myself cool that's actually really similar to uh, a sort of protection and banishing ritual i use i don't spin it though i just kind of like fill the space with it yeah we've actually talked about this before um i actually do spin it i imagine it a little bit more like um a whirlwind but it's really sort of similar to what you're saying it's kind of interesting oh very cool now during my uh, grove opening ceremony uh, this is incorporated into it before the magical workings or the rituals begin. I know in in some in some traditions the sphere like a sphere of protection type thing is done before you even set up or do anything else. But interestingly enough, this one's done kind of in the middle before the magic work begins. Hmm. Yeah, it's definitely for me one of the one of the first things I do. But you know, in between the time of the grove opening ceremony and the grove closing ceremony, the Druid is only limited by their knowledge of magic. Uh, these ceremonies are also memorized and conducted with no books or notes. Um, they're also used for the holy day rituals, which are the same that are found on the eightfold wheel, the eightfold wheel year that was developed by Gerald Gardner and Ross Nichols back in the fifties. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I actually really appreciate the uh, practice without books and notes. <laughs> it's kind of. It's kind of my jam, um, so that resonates with me for sure. Yeah, me too. I like that a lot. I like the idea too of like once you're in the space, you know, you you're good and you can do whatever you need to do. You don't need to keep on uh, reiterating that. I guess. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to point out that any kind of magic can be performed in druidry. Uh, individual members who apply like a bilateral approach where They've decided one side is good and the other side is bad. You know, they might shun you for certain approaches. And heck, even some druids might might scoff at others who do more than just the holy day rituals. But most orders and the leaders of them won't. They prefer the freedom of expression in practice. 
I, I guess in other words, good magic or bad magic is defined by the individual and not the system. But I mostly stick with druid magic using the solar current and variations of high spiritualistic magic as much as I use the tolerant current and variations of low material magic. That includes making and enchanting sachets, incenses, powders, oils, herbal tea mixes, candles, and I mean anything else as the attempt arises. I like to craft things. I like to make art. You know, for me, magic is creativity. Therefore, creativity yeah, is magic. I totally 100% agree, I agree with that. Yeah, definitely. I think Luxa had a question that kind of falls in line with that. Yeah, I was wondering. Um, so when crafting your tools, I've heard some people that are kind of into druidry um, say that they like to have the tri- or what they consider to be the traditional like elements from like let's say Ireland or something like Rowan wood or like um, something like that. I was wondering, in your opinion, do you think it's better to use things that are found in the environment around you or to go for a more traditionalist quote unquote approach? I think it's more important to use what's around you because Druidry is about living where you are in peace and harmony in the moment. And you're not going to have that connection to like, say the yew tree. If you've never seen or much less touched or talked to or felt a yew tree's energy, yeah, awesome. where you could go out and say, there's a cedar in my backyard. What does it have to show me? Yeah, totally. <laughs> I love that. That's, yeah. that's really awesome. Now, tradition is important because on the path, we're also somewhat bards and story keepers and studiers of mythology and lore. So it's also important to know those traditions. Mm-hmm. But as far as practice, I prefer more, you know, what's in my grove. Yeah, Sure. Yeah. You have to know the rules to understand how to properly break yep. them, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because really, with all these magic books, they're, what they're trying to do is almost every one of them will say, do it how we tell you to do it. Because they want you to feel that energy the way it was meant to be felled mm-hmm. or felt. So when you go out and you start crafting your own magic, you can have those same sensations and know that, oh, that's the same feeling I had when I was doing it their way. But now I'm doing it my way, which is more personal. And now... It's more powerful because of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, making those connections, I think, could be really helpful. I think yeah, that's a really good point. Absolutely. And I think mm-hmm. that's why, at least for me, I'm, I'm very much drawn to like the, the chaos magic approach because that allows me like the freedom to kind of use and connect with anything around me at any time. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So, uh, would you talk to us a little bit about um, like enchanting and stuff like that? Sure. Um, when I enchant items or tools, I invoke or banish from the four material elements in the aspects I need for my intention. Then from the spirit elements, I invoke power from the tolerant current below using the heather pentagram, which is a pentagram with the point facing down. Then I invoke the solar current using the oak pentagram, which is a pentagram with the point facing up. So upright solar, upside down, uh, telleric. And then with the mixtures of those two currents, that makes the Lunar Nuifer current, which stirs and bestows the creative aspect of Aowen, the divine inspiration that flows. In turn, it also awakens the, do- the dormant Nuifer that is already inside of tools or items. 
Now, sometimes when I enchant, I invoke the stations of the wheel year using uh, starting with the tolerant current peak and working my way around with the appropriate invoking heather and invoking oak pentagrams. In the invoking of the stations, the telluric and solar current peak pentagrams start at the lower and upper points respectively. Then the stations in between the peaks are invoked with heather and oak pentagrams beginning at the various left or right points of the pentagrams. Um, I'm probably making this sound way more complicated than it actually is. Uh, <laughs> right now, in, in June of 2020, the telluric current peak is at Samhain. And the solar current peak is at Beltane until um, we get to the summer solstice, and then it'll all shift 45 degrees. All right. Okay. Interesting. But the uh, first method, it's primarily used for active tools and items, like if you want to enchant wands or, or staffs or knives or things like that. Um, pretty much anything you want to direct life force or new effort with. And the second one is good for receptive tools like cauldrons and bowls and goblets and things like that, where you kind of want to draw the new ifra you placed into it from it. All right. Okay, sure. And now's a good time to point out that there's a proclamation of peace to the four quarters in the Grove opening ceremony. For without peace, our work cannot proceed. So... I don't do anything like hexing, cursing, or use ill intent, and I really don't know of any druids that do. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. On that note, then, um, is there a particular way within the tradition that you deal with like problematic situations? I've heard of some people will say, "Well, instead of um, cursing or hexing, I I sort of I like bind people instead to like stop them from like spreading." malicious rumors or, or something like that. Is there a way that, that you deal with those kinds of situations? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You can bind people, you can bind entities, you can, you can do all kinds of things. Uh, sometimes it's even just effective, like to do like a banishing against their energy, okay. uh, within your sphere of protection. And then, you know, nothing like that can get through to you. Sure. All right. So would you talk to us a little bit about, uh, what divination looks like from your yeah, perspective? Yeah. Yeah. The, um, Second leg to the cauldron of druid magic is divination. I perform divination mostly using the oums. And the oums are letters of an alphabet that was used by the druids and was found in the Orisep Nonanesis, or the Scholar's Primer written by Longerid some time ago. Uh, people really don't know when. Some people think it was back in like the 700s, and they think stuff was added to it in the 1100s and the 1200s. More specifically, it was found in the Book of Ballymoat in Scotland, I believe, in a, in a fort that was built by Edward Longshanks, ironically enough, hmm. because he's also the king that he had the war against the bards. Interesting. But he wasn't able to find that. That or... is ironic. <laughs> <laughs> but each of these letters referred to as a few, it opens itself to a whole cosmology of symbols, ideas, concepts, aphorisms, paths. Now, historically, it probably wasn't used as a divination system by the ancient druids. You know, they probably threw bones or looked at smoke or, you know, looked at sheep entrails or something like everybody else. But... 
Um, nowadays, I mean, it's very comparable to how Hebrew letters work for Kabbalah or how runes work for heathenry. Uh, Oam reading is more along the lines of an oracle system where the reading comes from intuition as much as the knowledge from the meditative study of the fuse, as opposed to something more predetermined and defined like the tarot, which I do use from time to time, but not daily. But every druid is encouraged to attach symbol and meaning to the Oams based upon their geographical location over the course of their practice. Uh, rather than staying with the traditional meanings, which are learned first. And, I mean, these symbols, they include emotions, colors, states of mind, parts of a journey, needs that may not be realized, aphorisms, advice for upcoming events, trees, animals, birds, colors, tools, numbers, all kinds of things. Oh, very cool. interesting. Very cool. Yeah. Um, another type of divination I perform is scrying, uh, but I don't do scrying every day. Uh, the way I conduct scrying is by first doing a grove opening ceremony with my altar facing the gate I wish to scry, unless I'm scrying the spirit gates. Then I perform the spirit protection ritual as normal, with no empowerment. Uh, I take my seat at the altar, where I begin visualizing my inner grove as vividly as I can. I know you've talked about on your podcast before about like inner castles and inner temples and stuff, and that's kind of what this is. Hmm. And then the rest of the journey is all done imaginally through visualization. So I get up and walk to the gate I'm going to scry. At this point, if I want a guide, I ask for one. And that guide will meet me somewhere inside. Then I expand the gate I wish to enter until I can step through the scenery I already visualized in the calling of the elements portion of the daily sphere of protection ritual. Once I'm inside, I practice some stillness. I saunter about, I explore things, sometimes I encounter the beings that inhabit these dimensions. The most uh, fascinating thing I've discovered is that they know things I don't know, mm. which is why I consider this a form of divination. But, I mean, heck, from a scientific point of view, is it divination or is it deep memory access to things that I forgot I even knew. <laughs> That's I the think we talked about wondering. something like that in our uh, quantum psychology stuff on Patreon, Luxa. Isn't that part of uh, what's yeah. his name's work? It comes up a lot. Yeah. I do want to point out, so, too, um, that I think what, what you're describing, some people might call pathworking. Is that is that a term that you have ever used in your own mind when thinking about this process? process? Um... Not with this type, but with another type, yeah. Okay, cool, just curious. Now, with another type I do, it's I scry the stations, and that's more like a path working, because the stations can be thought of like a time in place, like, uh, like a time in space rather than a place, K kind of like the Tree of Life in Kabbalah, mm -hmm. how you move from station to station with certain visualizations. yeah. It's like that, but except you're moving around the, the eight-fold will year. Okay. So you'd move from, like, Albanarthuin, which is the winter solstice, to something like Imbolc, which is the one right after it around February 1st. Cool. All right. Very cool. Thank you. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about that later and how the ohms fit into all that also. Oh, cool. Okay, rad. <laughs> um. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, whenever I'm finished with my scrying, I, I go back to the gate and I 
I write down everything I saw and I use that for future meditations. But whenever I scry the element of spirit within, I stay where I'm at and I imagine myself shrinking and descending into the inner landscape of my mind and my body. That's interesting. Uh, Yeah, I'm going to play with that later. (laughs) Yeah, this is very inspirational. Yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and then, I mean, meditate on that stuff, you know, because that's where the real key to it is. Yeah. But but I also scry, you know, I'll I'll use like mirrors under moonlight or dim light, uh, scry into flames, you know, for visions. And so for for mirrors, do you you use a regular mirror? Do you use like a a so-called black mirror or obsidian or I've used both. And I mean, heck, since the invention of these cell phones. Everybody has a black mirror in their pocket yeah, now. Yeah, totally. Right? You need a reflective surface, <laughs> right? More ways than one. <laughs> yeah. I feel like at some point in the show, I talked about like uh, scrying on like bus windows while you're like in transit or something like that. Oh, yeah. There's a, oh, there's this, this French scientist who does a lot of study on, on dim light hallucinations. Mm. I wish I could remember his name, but. Yeah, if you put that in the Google, it'll probably come up. You can read all about it. He has some very fascinating studies. All right. Note to whoever edits this. Oh, I already put it in the Google. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So you, the third leg you say said is meditation. Would you, you talk to us a bit about what that looks like for you? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, the third leg of the cauldron of druid magic is meditation. Meditation is done at least once a day. I usually do more, but I read and research quite a bit. All druids are encouraged to adopt a practice of stillness, which is a type of mindful meditation. The idea behind it is to just sit still somewhere, preferably in nature, but I mean, I mean, nature's all around us, so really wherever. And you clear your mind and you just look, you listen, you smell, you feel the air movement. If you can feel the telluric and the solar currents, you know, uh, and I mean, anything else you can with your senses. Okay. Yeah, I really like that. That's, I think this idea of like kind of going out in a place where you kind of feel, uh, feel, feel the power, you feel the stuff as we were saying, um, mm-hmm. and just sitting down and uh, kind of entering like a state of receptivity, you know, uh, can, can be really cool. It's very cool. Oh, absolutely. I mean... Anybody who doesn't practice it, really just living in the moment for five, ten minutes a day can give you so much peace. Yeah, absolutely. But as far as other meditations, I use uh, what's called color breathing meditation. And that's where I deeply breathe in for four seconds, a color that symbolizes certain traits, states of mind or emotions for me. I visualize it radiating from my chest out to my extremities while holding the breath in for four seconds. On the four-second out breath, I visualize the color leaving my body and filling the air and space around me for four seconds. And I just repeat over and over. I breathe this new effort-charged color air quite a bit in my practice to invoke certain things within myself. Could you give us an example of like um, a color association that you might use for this? Absolutely. Like if I'm wanting to get into a state of mind where I'm learning, I'll breathe kind of like this pale yellow color. Or if I'm wanting to get more energy, like if I'm reading and I'm kind of nodding off, I'll breathe in a kind of like a orange, but it's more of a reddish orange is what works best for me in that. Okay. Um, really, I mean, 
everybody's different. I mean, if you're gonna, you're gonna try it, just try different colors and you know, you'll, you'll feel it almost immediately. Awesome. That's another thing yeah, to I love, play with later. <laughs> yeah. I love yeah. that. And I, I love um, kind of thinking about color too, um, as it applies to like crafting enchanted items and like, you know, tying those resonances together. Cool. Oh, absolutely. Or selecting like altar cloth colors or candle colors or there's a lot you can do with color. Sure. Yeah. Now the, the four, 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 four breath technique is, I think it's called pramayana in yoga, but in my tradition, it's just called rhythmic breathing. Okay. okay. And it's one of the steps I do before entering what is called discursive meditation. Are you guys familiar with this type of meditation? Um, Not by that name. Okay. Yeah. Well, even if we are, I'm sure other people would love to hear about it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Oh, true. true. It's, it's not just us here talking. Huh? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it feels that way, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So discursive meditation, it took me almost a year to learn. Um, I use concentration exercises to get there, along with what I call mind guidance. And mind guidance is when I realize my thoughts left my concentration target when I was doing the concentration exercises, instead of just snapping it back to the focus of the concentration, I would guide my mind back by tracing the thoughts from the last one I had to the first one that caused my mind to wander off. Okay. But the the result of learning this is so rewarding that the long journey to it is all worth it. Um, this is a type of meditation that is encouraged for, I think, all druids. Um, but it is meditating on an idea, a sentence, an image, or just anything one wishes to understand and know. You know, the thinking process isn't stopped. Um, instead, it is redirected and clarified. The thoughts are not abolished. They're made into a force for deeper movement of consciousness. You know, many of the myths, symbols, and teachings of any chosen tradition are specifically designed to yield up their meaning only to careful, focused attention, which is also known as a cult study or the study of meanings that are hidden underneath symbols, myths, character traits, and parables in every tradition. To compare discursive meditation to something like contemplation would be like referring to yoga as just stretching. Yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, that's a good analogy. I like that. No, that's perfect. <laughs> oh, I was just curious. Um, this sounds a little bit like insight meditation. Okay. I'm not sure if uh, if it's true or not, but <laughs> just curious. Possibly. Okay. Names <laughs> <laughs> for all of the different things that we do different people call it lots of things different Ex things you know yeah for sure yeah okay, so how do you like how do you start out with this process okay so first i start with a theme like a sentence a picture a symbol uh one of the oems i was talking about uh a tarot card uh anything can be used um if it's too long to describe in like a fairly short sentence I'll break it apart in two or more meditations and recombine it later. Especially when you're dealing with like occult books, because they like to use those long run-on sentences. <laughs> <laughs> that leave you going, wow, there's there's so much enveloped inside this sentence that I got to break this thing down and do it its own <laughs> series. Romantic era writing, right? Uh, a, Frankenstein's written the same way. <laughs> yeah. So, so I just start by relaxing. Um, 
I perform a cleansing breath, which pushes out all my stagnant neurifera. That's just a, a really, really deep breath, as deep as I can go. And then after that, I begin that rhythmic breathing, you know, in for four, out for four, hold for four. Um, sometimes I incorporate color breathing, but I don't always. Um, then I do three, four, or sometimes seven normal breaths or silent breaths with my mind completely clear. After that, I turn my attention to the theme. I just start by thinking over it in a general way, getting an overall sense of it. If it's a sentence, I'll go over each word specifically, making sure I grasp it, you know, because there's a reason they specifically chose every single word. If it's an image, I look at each color and shape, every object, symbol, every subject in the scene. As I'm doing this, questions will start coming into my mind and, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll have an issue that'll come up and I keep mental notes of every question and every issue I find. Once I have my general grasp, I've been exploring every question and issue I've taken note of. I go as far as I can exploring meaning, roots, sources, consequences, comparisons, implications, just even the feelings I have toward it. I, I try to look at it from different points of view, uh, just trying to learn everything I can about it. If my mind wanders off, and I mean, that happens a lot, you know, I'll get a random song lyric in my head or something. <laughs> sure. Yeah, happens to all of us. <laughs> Or, or go off on some random mental chatter thing. I, I just use that mind guidance to direct it back to where I ventured off rather than trying to snap it back to my theme. Uh, for me, this kind of meditation is just being aware of exactly what I'm thinking it while I'm thinking it. Yeah. I think that description was incredibly concise and I think will probably be very helpful to people. So thank you so much for that. <laughs> yeah, that, that was really wonderful. Uh, a thing I do um, when I'm meditating and my mind starts to wander, I, I tend to practice like zazen, uh, no thought meditation a lot. And uh, when I become aware that I'm sort of thinking about things instead of trying to focus on not thinking, I sort of imagine like a stream running through my mind and everything just kind of runs down the stream and out the back. Um, and that seems to work really well for calming and focusing for me but that's cool yeah oh wow that's a really interesting technique just thought i'd throw that in there <laughs> no hell yeah dude hey do you guys mind if we take a very short break all right we good to carry on here uh yeah let's uh let's get back into it all right. Yes. So our next question for you is uh, what has been the most useful or most beneficial or perhaps your favorite thing you've learned in your journey thus far? The most useful thing I've learned is that nature is just not some far off wilderness place that like you retreat to like a beach or a forest. You know, it's it's in us and it is with us. It's all around us, no matter where we go or what we do. Yeah, absolutely. Like, we are nature, right? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. And sometimes it's easy to forget that with our modern world. Yeah, definitely. But uh, another thing is the concept of Aowen. Aowen inspires both the poet and the diviner. 
it is the spirit energy or the inspiration that flows through everything with an essence. You don't have to be born with the sense. Most people can learn to awaken to their own energy and recognize the energies around them. This all begins with the opening of oneself, of one's spirit, to just truly and deeply see. When we're open, we can receive that divine gift of the inspiration that flows. And it doesn't necessarily even need a spiritual path. I mean, musicians, poets, writers, they've been channeling and pulling all in for millennia. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, another useful thing I've learned is that like science and religion or materialism and spirituality, along with other most, uh, you know, quote unquote, opposing forces, they can be transcended and developed further when they're explored along their fundamentals of similarity rather than the opposites of their polarity. Yeah, and I feel like that's true about so many things that we try and like make polar opposites when really we could just, you know, put yeah, them together. I've been, <laughs> I've been thinking about this so much lately, guys. Like there's so many, this idea of opposites comes up so much in occultism and like, I always think to myself, well, maybe it's a dial, not a coin, right? Like, I don't know. <laughs> Sure, or like, yeah, I don't know. I can't come up with Does that. Does that make sense? Example, but <laughs> yeah. it's shades of gray I mean, rather than black and white, you know? Exactly. It's not yeah, one exactly. side or the other. It's it's a, it's a gradation. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you think about two opposites long enough, you'll find what links them, and then you'll find you know, what connects them, and then you'll realize, wow, there's just mostly a lot of sameness there other than the name. <laughs> right? That's Definitely. A really good That's a good way of looking at it. And, um, <laughs> And a lot of it has to do with perception. Like you could call somebody very organized and, and well put together, or you can call them a control freak. Mm -hmm. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and perception plays. Is, yeah, and what's funny is those are both true. So, I mean. <laughs> yeah, depending on like how you look at it and how you interact with it and how you feel about it, right? Sure, and then it makes you ask, okay, well, then what's true, right? But talk about that more on our patreon of well, quantum psychology but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um the most i think the most beneficial thing i've acquired is really my deep sense of knowledge of myself along with the peace and harmony within myself that that knowledge brings yeah that that's a beautiful thing to have gained on your journey so far it's truly wonderful and yeah definitely well said so are there any specific tools or texts or skills or anything that you find that you use more than any others? Um, and is there anything that's been like particularly useful to you? The ohms I was talking about earlier, uh, they can serve more magical function than just divination. And they make up a huge part of my practice. Uh, they can be used in magical workings for their symbolic values. They can be invoked for their characteristic values. They each have their own special quality of New Ivra or life force, which has a more precise focus than like the broader energies of like the elements or even the stations. Uh, they can also be used for moving from station to station along the eightfold year wheel with the grove in the center, which is then interconnected by each ohm. And, you know, that's like I said earlier, that's comparable to the tree of life found in Kabbalah and other traditions. But the main differences is these stations are initiated into multiple times over the course of a practitioner's life, just as we, as people, 
go through the seasons more than once in our life. And they're also thought of more like a time and space rather than a place. And that time can either be seasonal along its earth path, but it can also be the time of day along its sun path, or it can be the phase as a moon along the moon path. I used to work with this system that was very much like, watch what the moon's doing and then schedule your working for this cycle with the moon at this time of the month, at this time of the year. And it's like, I got kids. I got a job. I can't be (laughs) doing all this stuff. But now that I've learned to just invoke that energy into my grove where I can be like, it doesn't need to be 3 a.m. It can be three in the afternoon and I can pull in the new Ivra of that three o'clock to six o'clock in the morning. The like the witching hour is as some places call it. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I have many skills which are useful to my path. Uh, I garden. I do woodworking. I do candle making. I have a lot of knowledge of local flora and fauna. I can play and write music. Uh, even the discipline from being a wartime infantry soldier long ago in my life helps me with my magical and spiritual disciplines to this day. That's yeah, I'm sure that that discipline really helps with like, especially things like, like meditation, which I think is probably one of the things that people struggle like scheduling and practicing and keeping up with. Yeah. And journaling too, I think. Yeah. That's another one. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I even did kind of a form of discursive meditation back when I was in the military, when I'd be standing in formation at attention, you know, just eyes forward standing for just, I mean, they'd leave us there for 30 minutes or an hour. And I would just sit there and go into my mind and explore the things I'm wanting to learn and know. And that's so cool. Again, magical opportunism, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And this was long before I was ever on a path like this. It was just something like got to do something while I'm passing the time. (laughs) (laughs) You were on the path all along. You just didn't know it until, you know? Yeah. Yeah. As far as a tech thing, uh, I was gifted a Kindle last year. And let me tell you, being able to search by keyword and reference in occult books has proved invaluable. (laughs) Yeah, that's one of the beauties of PDFs and things like that. I really love that. I just, I end up printing them because I have to write on it. So I'm curious, like, you know, concerning this idea of like tying together um, like occult studies and scientific studies and just like this kind of greater search for truth. Has there been any work done in terms of like, um, like investigating like the botanical nature of the plants in the OM and then kind of using associations to tie that together with their, you know, meanings? I don't know about on a scientific level. Uh, I know on like a spiritual level, yeah. No, on a scientific level, I want to say there's a show on Netflix that's, I think it's called The Secret Life of Plants. Yeah, David Attenborough? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I think so. (laughs) Certain scientific reading things and put them on plants and they realize they kind of have their own language amongst each other it's very complicated and very interesting yeah trees like communicate through the roots and stuff too right they like talk to each other that way 
there's a lot of like symbiotic associations with like fungi and stuff like that. Uh-huh. Um, mm-hmm. It's crazy complicated, but yeah, sort of. I guess is the oh, short yeah. answer. <laughs> I mean, it's just like the the occult the occult theory that everything is interconnected. You know, like uh, I think Alistair Crowley called it the star sponge vision, mm. where it's just points of light that we're all interconnected. Mm. Definitely. Yeah. Like, uh, quantum entanglement. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, definitely under the surface with the fungi and the roots and things. I mean, there's plants that they'll give their energy to other plants when they're not getting enough sunlight or they're not getting enough nutrients. They will share with each other. And then there's even some plants that'll do the opposite and like steal from each other. It just... There's some that don't even like make their own chlorophyll because they get all of their energy from stealing from other plants. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mistletoe. Mistletoe is a sacred plant in our order, and it attaches itself to uh, any kind of tree and just lives off of the tree. Dang. Yeah. We find it a lot where um, where I live. Uh, It's commonly found on live oaks, so it's kind of interesting. Yeah, when it's growing on the live oak, they say that that is the most blessed form of it. Really? You know, Mm -hmm. I was out walking the other day and like a huge clump of it fell down at my feet and I picked it up and brought it home with me for some reason. So thank you for telling me that. (laughs) Now the bards, the bards don't have an oem for mistletoe because it's so sacred it can't have a name. So it's the space in between the oems. Oh, cool. Wow. That's really cool. All right. Based on your experience, is there anything you would caution um, a neophyte too. While doing shadow work, don't let fear hold you back, but don't rush it either. It's very daunting. And if not taken in slow steps, it can break you. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, yes. Lux Ego magic, shadow work. Yeah, careful with it. It's really powerful, really useful, but be careful. <laughs> good point. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And that's a an aspect of the... Uh, astral temple we're co-constructing is it not mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it is yeah just for our dear listeners out there uh something you can look forward to yeah just a little bit putting a little bit in there so yeah now as far as general advice for a neophyte i would say look within yourself as much as you look to knowledge outside yourself when we were children the world was a very magical place no one had to tell us this we just knew it We may be used to make wishes on dandelions and birthday candles. We climb trees and we talk to animals. You know, we might have friends that only we could see. We expressed our emotions and we felt them. We were in tune with the world around us, finding harmony, and we were living in the moment. We sang enchantments for the world around us. And maybe, if we were particularly lucky, we could chase after that leprechaun at the end of a rainbow. (laughs) But at some point, we locked this all away. We grew up, and we left those quote-unquote childish things behind us. The key to that lock can be found within. You can find that inner child and release it, and learn to live in harmony with the world around you again. It's okay to be childlike. You can rediscover that old belief you had in magic, and re-enchant your world all over again. Yes, absolutely. So can we just be like quiet for like three seconds while we let that sink in? Because that was fucking amazing. (laughs)
Yes, thank you so much. Okay, so, man, all right, how will we go after that? What are some areas of your practice that you've made some significant growth in recently, do you feel? Well, I read and meditate on quite a bit of mythology. And in the past year, I've seen comparisons amongst civilizations which should have never had any contact with each other. I have a theory I'm working on that at some point in the far past, a cataclysmic event happened and the survivors of it wound up on the shores of distant lands where a more primitive people lived. These refugees taught the people how to build, how to use mathematics, how to harness astronomy, how to work the land with agriculture, and, and so, so much more. Uh, these, these tales have even made their way into the modern retelling in the form of the ancient astronaut theory you'll see on the History Channel late at night. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite guilty pleasures. <laughs> but but before that, you know, it was like a sunken or a lost continent. And I, I mean, I guess that's still kind of a popular theory. But, mm -hmm. but for me, the source of the disaster is secondary to the idea that the wisdom these refugees brought was so great and so enlightening that later generations would refer to them as gods and goddesses, angels and other great entities or mythological figures. And I think this has a lot to do with the reason why most traditions essentially associate intelligence and knowledge with the light hmm. rather than the darkness. Yeah, definitely. There's, I was trying to find this um, in Manly P. Hall's book, The Secret Teachings of All Ages. Somewhere in there, he has a, a story of something very similar to what you were describing of like these seven i think they were seven like wise men or something like that who were part of some more advanced civilization kind of thing and of course like p hall was writing in like the 20s so he was really into uh, atlantis and that kind of stuff and like all the stuff blavatsky talked about but basically he was saying that uh, one of each of these seven people uh, ends up on the shores of the different civilizations, kind of like you were just describing, um, and shared their knowledge. Couldn't find the source to cite it. Oh, yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff, like uh, the Anunnaki is a big one. It's probably one of the most oldest, and when you compare that across to like the Book of Enoch or, or even the Irish mythology, um, there's a lot of overlap there. Uh, even the Romans and the Greeks, uh, the Romans especially, uh, viewed their gods as the planets in the sky, which is kind of why we named them the way we did. Cause there was always seven and there's a lot of, a lot of ancient wisdom and symbolism in the number seven. Yeah. Luck yeah, can probably talk about that more than me. <laughs> <laughs> We're probably going to do like, a thing about numerology at some point but yeah yeah definitely. seven is something that we're kind of into uh two we've worked a little bit with the the chariot and stuff and mm -hmm. uh, so yeah for very sure, cool for sure um what areas of your practice are you still um exploring or feel like you need to improve on currently i'm working through a book called the druid magic handbook by john michael greer the part I'm at speaks of energy centers within the body. This It's kind of similar to the chakras or the five centers of the middle pillar in the Golden Dawn. Okay. He describes the inner grail as having three centers, one for each new if or spirit current. The magical working begins with the three cauldrons ritual and daily exercises, followed by the rising dragons ritual and daily exercises, 
and finishes with the tree of light ritual and daily exercises. And just right now, I feel like it's a little too advanced for me because I'm still trying to understand the theory. But in short, it seems to place vessels for the new recurrence inside of the practitioner's body at various places so that possibly one does not have to invoke the currents from the earth and sun to mix and use them anymore. Unless, of course, I'm completely missing the point. <laughs> <laughs> but e either way, I'm not in the habit of conducting workings I don't understand completely. Sure, sure. And I've also found that with these kinds of books, they, they work in a way where they're confusing on purpose. And then one day it just kind of all clicks, and then I'm ready. It's like some unseen force or law keeps practitioners confused until they are at the stage to make the practices, workings, or exercises part of their life and practice. That's really well said. Like, I think it reminds me of the way I kind of approach some of this stuff, too. Like, occult knowledge is kind of like a cat. Like, if you run at it with your arms open, like, come here, come here, I'm going to get you. It's going to run away from you. But if you're quiet, it might approach you when you're ready or when it's ready. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a good metaphor. <laughs> Um, I guess that's also the reason, like, I'll read a book that, like, in a cold book, I hadn't read in, like, five years and get completely different meanings out of it than I did before. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I do this a lot. I'm going to relate this uh, sort of to a book about martial arts, but uh, you familiar with uh, Maimato Musashi? No. Um, one not. of the, like, Japan's greatest uh, known samurai, well, most well-known samurai, um, but he wrote a book called The Book of Five Rings. And in it, he talks about um, the spirit of the thing revealing itself to you. And the, the spirit of the thing is like whatever you're you're dedicating yourself to, whether it's like music or uh, sword fighting or whatever it is. And he says that the more you interact with the thing, the more it reveals its true nature to you. Ah, That's very cool. All right. So are there any occult projects that you are working on right now? I co-host a weekly podcast where we dig into all kinds of metaphysical and occult things. As the head researcher, it allows me to, one, expand my knowledge, and two, share it with others uh, in a creative way, uh, which in turn helps further my practice. Some of the episodes that might be of interest is our dig into the life and career of Madame Blavatsky, and in later episodes, Aleister Crowley. Fun, fun. We, yeah. We also have an interest in how elemental energy presents itself or is perceived by witnesses in the form of ghosts, cryptids, aliens, light and shadow phenomena, and all kinds of different things. You fun. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, um, yeah, absolutely. And uh, you should let our listeners know what the name of your podcast is so they can listen. Oh, yes, please. <laughs> oh, it's uh, Unearthing Paranormalcy. All right. Cool. Unearthing Paranormalcy. Now, is that available on most podcasting apps? That is available on all podcasting apps, I believe. Awesome. As far as I know. But basically, kind of our overall mission and what got it off the ground was we're in, we, me and my wife, we both grew up in Oklahoma, the middle of the Bible Belt, mm -hmm. during the time known as the Satanic Panic. <laughs> which really was only brought about because people's either lack of knowledge 
or their unwillingness to find the knowledge. Yes. So they would just make up their own knowledge. And I mean, you see it all the time with certain conspiracy theories where if you just kind of pull back the layer a little bit, you're like, oh, well, that kind of explains that piece a little more than yeah, what you're understanding right a now. a difference between a, a theory and a fantasy, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, the, you know, the deeper you dig, the more you uncover. Undoubtedly, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, I'm definitely going to be checking that out. Yeah, no So doubt. is there any questions that you have for us? Well, would you all be willing to come on to my podcast? Introduce yourselves to our community and possibly discuss magic and stuff. Yeah, yes, absolutely. yes, please. Yeah. I would love that. <laughs> Thank you so much. Because <laughs> because I talk a lot about theory, I don't really talk a lot about practice. Okay. Yeah, we'd be because when you talk when you talk practice, there's certain words you say where people would have to stop every so often and look it up. You know, unless mm. it's specifically a podcast like yours is, where it starts from okay, here's the practice, here's like kind of a vocabulary for as we go. It has a foundation. Yeah. Yeah, that would be cool. We would yeah. be into it. I would, yeah, I'd super be into it. <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah, thank you so much for, for taking the time to to go through our questions and put together your answers and come on and talk to us. Um, yeah, do you have really any like final it. thoughts or anything like that that you'd like to share? Well, I... Well, first, I want to thank you guys for the opportunity to come onto your podcast and share my practice and path with you and your listeners. Yeah, our pleasure. And um, if anybody has any questions or wants me to go into any more detail, I mean, I'm in the Fellow Travelers Facebook group. Uh, my name's Dave Ardry on there. You can just shoot me a message or or tag me in something, whatever. Great. Yeah. Hell yeah. Awesome. Um, Dave, thank you so yeah, much. This was you. so cool. I really appreciate it. Definitely. Oh, you're very welcome. 